You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. I've had some bankers tell me that once the Arctic melts, we'll work out how to refreeze it. I thought, they've got to be kidding, but they're not kidding. The potential quantity of methane that can be released in permafrost thaw affects the radiative balance from adding that amount of methane to the atmosphere. That's pretty straightforward. For April 5th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Since you're listening to this show, there's a good chance that you've seen various climate stories about feedback loops in which global warming causes the release of natural CO2 and methane that accelerates the warming trend. You've probably also heard fears expressed about so-called tipping points, certain undefined thresholds that, once passed, put us on a trajectory of unstoppable and irreversible climate doom. Oftentimes, the thawing of the Arctic permafrost is invoked as the site of one such feedback loop that could lead us to pass such a tipping point. But every time I've tried to examine the science and the assumptions behind such conjectures, I really haven't found any there there. It seems most authors who write about this stuff are essentially amplifying uncertainty and not talking about verifiable scientific observations or models, nor are they providing any useful context for that uncertainty. And while that may make for good clickbait, it's not helpful to the cause of taking action on climate because it mainly serves to reinforce the mistaken idea that the cause of climate action is hopeless, which makes people want to give up instead of doing what they can to join the effort. And so, despite repeated calls from some of our listeners to cover the topic of climate feedback loops and tipping points, we haven't so far, because we don't traffic in clickbait. If it doesn't have a solid scientific empirical basis, I'm really not interested in talking about it. But, like the hair on fire stories we retreated to a few years ago that were based on the extreme and implausible RCP 8.5 emissions scenario, some journalists just can't seem to resist the temptation to write up what's happening in the Arctic permafrost in the most exaggerated way possible, using uncertainty to emphasize the worst conceivable outcomes, and making no effort at all to understand and convey what is actually likely. But now we have some actual science to talk about that explains the complex role of the Arctic permafrost in the climate cycle. And so, just as we carefully detailed why the worst-case RCP 8.5 warming scenario is now utterly implausible in episodes 49, 51, 112, 116, 117, 166, and 173, among others. Today, we are finally tackling the question of feedback loops and tipping points associated with the thawing permafrost. By the end of this episode, you'll understand why, although there are climate feedback loops acting in the Arctic, they are much more predictable and modest in effect than they have been made out to be. You'll also be able to put down your worry beads over some ticking methane time bomb suddenly exploding in the Arctic and pushing the world past a tipping point and into climate doom, because that is not going to happen. To walk us through what the best available science about the Arctic permafrost says, we are privileged to welcome a genuine permafrost researcher to the show. Gustav Hugelius is a senior lecturer in the Department of Physical Geography at Stockholm University, where he is also the vice director of the Boland Center of Climate Research and the co-lead of the research unit Landscape, Environment, and Geomatics. He is also actively involved in ongoing research on the Arctic permafrost and carefully details for us in this episode what is real and what's not, as well as what we know and what we don't. 
Then in the news segment, we'll check Greenland's temperature, we'll visit a unique solar project in Switzerland, we'll check out a couple of innovative new thermal storage projects, and we'll chalk up the latest nuclear overruns. And now, our conversation with Gustav Hugelius, recorded February 16th, 2023. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Gustav, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much. For quite a few years now, a lot of people who are worried about the trajectory of global warming have speculated about the risks of so-called tipping points in which the melting of the Arctic permafrost leads to unstoppable and accelerated warming. But every time I have looked at the science that is used to support those speculations, I've found the data to be very uncertain and the projections inconclusive. So I've pushed back on those speculations. But at the same time, I certainly don't want to downplay actual climate risks or give anyone reason to be sanguine about serious warming factors. So I wanted to invite you on the show to help me and our listeners sort out what we know to be true scientifically and what is merely speculative or misunderstood or just not supported by the data. Because you are a bona fide researcher who works on quantifying and characterizing stocks of organic carbon stored in permafrost and peatlands of Arctic and boreal ecosystems. But before we get to the questions about tipping points and feedback loops, let's just start with the basics. What is permafrost? So permafrost is ground that stays frozen over at least one summer is the one common definition, but usually that stays frozen many thousands or at least hundreds of years. So it's a phenomenon we have all over the Arctic where the ground, if you dig down a little bit below the surface soil, you will find a frozen soil layer even in the height of summer, and it's usually also a quite thick layer that can extend far down into the ground. Okay, and how much permafrost is there? There's quite a lot, actually. Permafrost covers about 15 million square kilometers in the Northern Hemisphere. That's a quarter of the Northern Hemisphere land, and it extends across the Arctic and Boreal Zone, mainly in Russia and Canada, but certainly also in in the US and in Northern Europe. Hmm, okay. So what is the role of permafrost in the global carbon cycle? Permafrost has an important role in the global carbon cycle over very long time scales. It has been, if we look at our current point in time, it's been a really long-term carbon sink that's been accumulating carbon in the soil as plant material that's been frozen and preserved in the soil for many thousands of years. And we've had a successive accumulation of carbon at least for the past 10,000 years across the whole permafrost zone, give or take. And in some areas, the carbon is a lot older. A lot of the permafrost carbon that is thawing now is actually hundreds of thousands of years old. Hmm. Okay. So obviously the Arctic covers a massive area, as you were just explaining, and it contains a very complex ecosystem with a lot of highly variable characteristics. So what are some of the variables that affect the release of carbon from the permafrost? So the most important variable is the temperature. The temperature of the soil, which is in turn primarily driven by the temperature of the overlying atmosphere. So as temperatures increase, Obviously, over time, the temperature of the permafrost will also increase. It will thaw and respond in different ways. But it's not just as simple as if the temperature goes above zero degrees in the air above, it starts to thaw quickly. There's often a delay. The permafrost will not respond super quickly because 
there's a soil layer that's overlying the permafrost that will act as a insulation. So if you have a lot of organic soil, so peaty soils, they are quite effective at keeping the heat out of of the ground. So the properties of the soil dictates the responses. Another thing that is really important is the amount of ice that is found in the permafrost. Permafrost is not just soil. It can be frozen bedrock. It can be frozen organic material, which is the reason that we have a climate feedback because there's a lot of organic material in there, old plant remains and so on. But there's also a lot of ice. And a lot of this ice is in the form of really pure ice wedges or ice lenses that can make up a really big part of the soil or of the ground. And the more ice you have, the more rapid a response you can get under certain circumstances if the ice starts melting quickly and turns into water in the ground. Hmm. So if you sink a bit and make a drilling core, let's say six feet down, you might find a whole variety of things in there. It's very heterogeneous. So you might find some rock, you might find some some organic material, you might find some ice, you might find peat, all sorts of stuff, depending on wherever you're drilling. Yes, that's correct. So there's a large variability down the core and also which makes mapping quite challenging is that if you move, imagine you move two steps to the left, you might drill there and then all of a sudden you hit pure ice, which can extend for 10 or 20 or 30 meters. You have this massive Mm. variability below ground that you sometimes don't really see a surface expression of, so that you can't really tell from the soil surface what is happening below ground. Right. You can often get hints because there will be subtle vegetation changes and so on, but mapping the permafrost properties is actually really challenging because there's this very large variability in the properties Mm. of the subsoil. You know, something that just occurred to me that I've never really thought about before with respect to this topic is, Does the warming penetrate like deep into the ground? You were just saying that the ice can actually go many meters deep. I know that in most places in the world, if you dig a hole six feet down, you find relatively stable temperatures. In North America, it's about 55 degrees Fahrenheit or thereabouts. So how does warming penetrate into the permafrost? Does it just keep on going or is there like the top six feet is more likely to warm and then below that, not so much? That's a good question. It varies in space and time. In general, we can say that the warming penetrates relatively slowly. So it takes decades to even centuries sometimes for the permafrost temperatures to really catch up with changes in atmospheric temperature. And you would see the upper meter to meters, sorry, I'm using meters rather than feet, but the temperature there will fluctuate with the season a little bit, but then you get down to a depth of what we call zero annual amplitude, which is typically a few meters into the permafrost where the temperature is stable. So there is a thermal gradient or temperature gradient also within the permafrost itself. And in a lot of places, you will actually have the permafrost thawed also from below because of a a thermal heat flux coming from the Earth's interior, which might be warmer in some places than the actual permafrost. So the permafrost might be thawing both from above and below in some places. Okay. So when we're talking about the thawing of the permafrost, we're really mostly talking about the thawing of sort of the top meter or two, right? Yes, so we tend to group it into two different processes. One which we call gradual thaw, which is a successive, if you imagine if you have a climate warming, you would have a successive deepening of 
the surface layer that thaws every year, which we call the active layer. So that active layer mm. will become deeper and deeper and deeper. With a few centimeters per year, it can be a, a typical thaw rate that we see in a rapidly warming area. So that's something that happens successively. It happens all across the permafrost region, and it's being observed right now as happening in most areas, not everywhere, but we see that happening broadly. And the second type of thaw that we talk about is abrupt thaw, which is processes that can occasionally actually penetrate relatively quickly to greater depths. And this happens when you have a lot of ice in the ground, because as the ice melts away and drains away, you get a loss of soil volume. Basically, if you imagine having a big chunk of ice in the ground, it drains away as water. All of a sudden you have less volume, the ground will start to collapse, and then you have water draining into that area, pooling up, which is a really effective way of conducting heat more rapidly into the ground. Right, and right. This can happen either from the top down or from the side as well. If you have along the coast, the permafrost coast is retreating quickly in some areas, along a river, along the edge of a lake, the heat can also penetrate into the permafrost from the side, and then you can get these quite rapid responses that can penetrate. There are examples from Siberia of these thaw craters that are tens of meters deep that have wow. formed over just a few years or decades. So in some places it can happen rapidly, but usually it's gradual. So how much carbon dioxide and methane is locked up in the permafrost? So when we talk about the permafrost carbon storage, most of it, it's not stored as a greenhouse gas. It's not stored as carbon dioxide or methane, which is actually a very common misconception. There is some very limited amounts of free gas in the permafrost, but the vast majority of the carbon that's frozen is old plant remains or sometimes also remains of animals. But plant remains are really the most sort of prevalent carbon storage there. And that's really large amount of carbon that is frozen into the permafrost. In the northern circumpolar permafrost region, including both the Arctic tundra and the boreal taiga, where there's a lot of permafrost, we estimate that there are somewhere between 1,400 and 1,600 gigatons, so that's a billion tons of organic carbon. And that's twice what the whole atmosphere contains, and about three times as much as all living vegetation on planet Earth. So it's a really wow. large carbon storage. Wow. Okay. So there is a lot of organic material there. There's a lot of yes. carbon there locked up in plant matter. And I take it this is undecomposed plant matter, right? Yes. I should add for clarification that actually not all of that carbon is frozen. So some of that will already be in the active layer that we talked about earlier, this layer yeah. that thaws every summer. But there's also additional pools of carbon that we haven't been able to quantify well yet. A large part of that is actually under the Arctic Ocean seafloor. So there's permafrost also at the bottom of the sea mm. and other really deep deposits that might contain as much as another thousand petagrams. But those estimates no. are very uncertain. What's the relationship between subsea permafrost and sort of like the methane clathrates tied up in the subsea that we've heard about? It's a very complex system. So in the subsea permafrost, you have some of the frozen carbon there is 
actually terrestrial in origin or it came from a land ecosystem. Mm. And that is because at the height of the last glacial maximum, so when the last ice age, when it was at its peak, and also earlier ice ages, because so much water was tied up in the ice sheets, the sea level was about 140 meters lower than it is today, which means that a lot of these shallow shelf seas that surrounds the Arctic Ocean, they were actually exposed land. So you had uh-huh. you had mammoths roaming around in a grassy tundra ecosystem and really productive ecosystem at that time that bound a lot of carbon in the soil. Huh. And that's since then been flooded by the sea and is now in permafrost in the subsea. Gotcha. But in addition, there are also methane clathrates that are below the permafrost and just on like the edges of these shallow seas when they start sloping off into deeper oceans then you have the formation of clathrates which is basically pure methane ice that remains stable as long as it's either very cold or under high pressure mm-hmm. okay so i have to imagine that the subsea permafrost would have slower thawing than the above-ground permafrost that's exposed to the air because the temperatures below the sea are quite cold and quite stable. Actually, it turns out that actually it has successively been thawing because quite often the bottom water temperatures can still be above zero degrees. And then there is actually quite a lot of rapid thaw observed in that region. And there's been, especially in cases when you see decline in sea ice cover, you can also see a connection between the sea ice and the sort of water temperatures at greater depths because under sea ice you get the formation of something called brine which is this very salty and cold water that sinks down because it's so cold it sinks down to the bottom of the ocean and then you get like a lid of cold water that preserves the permafrost but if you don't have any brine formation if there's less sea ice you might get warmer temperatures at the seafloor that would increase the thaw rate. Wow. Okay. <laughs> this is really complicated it stuff. Is, isn't it, it is. <laughs> well, I'm beginning to appreciate why we've heard a lot of confusing stories about this, because this is not a simple, straightforward story to tell. Okay. So we know that there, as you said uh, a little bit ago, there's vastly more carbon dioxide and methane locked up in the permafrost than there is in the atmosphere or on land. So it's a very large amount. How much of each of those things, carbon dioxide and methane, might be released in the future to the best of our knowledge? So we know that thawing permafrost is already emitting both CO2 and methane. At current levels, the increased growth of boreal forest and tundra ecosystems are probably offsetting those emissions or they are offsetting those emissions or even exceeding them but the projections are that within a few decades the emissions from the thawing permafrost will exceed the accumulation of carbon dioxide into trees and other vegetation and will start growing quite significant so today the net emissions from the permafrost region are on the order of what japan emits today Okay. But that is offset by high productivity in boreal forest and tundra ecosystems. Of the vegetation is still growing quite well. So we still see the whole permafrost region today is still a net sink of CO2. Huh. It's a source of methane, but a sink of CO2. So <coughs> we also have this balance where depending on 
which timeline you want to calculate it on. If you look at a 20-year timeline when the impact of the methane is quite significant over short time periods, but less significant over long time periods because it doesn't stay as long in the atmosphere, right. then the permafrost region would already be a net warming source for the globe. But if you look at long time scales, the CO2 is more important. But in the coming decades, and by the end of this century, the projections, depending on how much we warm the atmosphere with anthropogenic emissions, the projections are that the permafrost region will emit something similar to what the European Union is emitting today. In higher emission trajectories, the permafrost region might even reach emission rates of what the United States or China have today. Okay, but that's as a whole, for the whole Arctic permafrost. That's all of the northern permafrost, including the warming from both CO2 and methane. Okay. All right, so equivalent potentially to the emissions of somewhere between a small country like Japan or a large country like China in total. Yes. Okay, and the methane that's being released, is that produced by the decomposition of the organic matter down there? Yes, both the CO2 and the methane is a byproduct of the decomposition of organic matter by microbes. So it's essentially they are eating the old plant remains to maintain right. growth. And as a byproduct of their respiration, they produce CO2 if they're doing it in an environment where there's a good supply of oxygen. If they're doing it in a, a wetland, a fen, a bog, a lake where there's less oxygen, they instead produce methane as a byproduct because they use a different sort of pathway for their metabolism when there's no oxygen in the environment. Yeah, you've got anaerobic bacteria doing yes. the decomposition, exactly. right? Okay. So we were just talking there that there's a whole range of estimates for what the total emissions could be. And I know having reviewed some of the literature that you shared with me that there's been a number of scenarios done to try to come up with these estimates. How are those estimates done? Where did these various warming scenarios come from? Are they similar to the ones produced by the IPCC, which we have discussed at length on this show? Generally speaking, how is the modeling done for the release of CO2 and methane from the permafrost? I think we can say that the main source of information at this stage, where the science is now, is from the same type of climate models that the IPCC use. Okay. So... Some Earth system models do have a fair representation of the gradual thaw of permafrost that we talked about before, where you have this successive deepening of the active layer. And the models are also able to simulate the increased decomposition of permafrost carbon and the release of CO2. What the models do not simulate is abrupt thaw. So there, there's a lot of good observational empirical understanding of abrupt thaw processes, a lot of long time series of flux measurements where you put systems for quantifying greenhouse gas fluxes out into the environment and study them over time. And there's a lot of understanding of how these systems have worked in the past. So we tend to use past analogs a lot to understand and project into the future. We can recreate what happened in earlier warming periods, how did these landforms respond then? So taking that together, we have produced in the permafrost carbon network a simplified model of abrupt thaw that is sort of the state of the art right now when it comes to quantifying or modeling the abrupt thaw processes where we've 
divided the Abraptho into typical landform types and then projected them into the future. And we tend to use the same warming scenarios as does the IPCC, for instance, the representative concentration pathways. All right. So that all makes sense. So let's get to the big question here that everyone wants to know the answer to, which is, is the Arctic permafrost some sort of a ticking time bomb that's just going to explode at some point, throwing the global climate into an unstoppable feedback loop that spells climate doom? <laughs> and, and just so that our listeners don't think I'm making up those claims, because I've heard them over and over again, I've just selected more or less at random a sample of the kind of warning I'm talking about. So this is an excerpt from a 2018 post on the NRDC's website. Quote, estimates on how much carbon and methane will be released by thawing permafrost vary, but according to one study, as much as 92 billion tons of carbon could be emitted between now and 2100. For perspective, that's equal to nearly 20% of all global carbon emissions since the start of the Industrial Revolution. The problem doesn't end there, however. Looking forward, as thawing permafrost dumps more of its massive supply of greenhouse gases into the air, warming the climate and melting even more carbon and methane emitting permafrost, an unstoppable feedback loop may be triggered, one that could ultimately turn the Arctic from a carbon sink that absorbs emissions to a carbon source. End quote. Okay, Gustav, how much of that is accurate based on your knowledge? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to a group of researchers from Germany and Denmark, new data from ice cores drilled in 2011 show a dramatic rise in temperatures there. Since 1995, the island has been 2.7 degrees F, or 1.5 degrees C, hotter than its 20th century average, the warmest it has been in more than 1,000 years. Previously, the data on Greenland ice cores had not shown a temperature increase since 1995. It also showed that Greenland was not warming as fast as the rest of the Arctic, leading some observers to speculate that the so-called missing warming belied the global warming trend. 
But what was actually happening is that natural weather variability in Greenland had masked the human-driven warming, and the ice core data had not been updated since 1995, which is why the strong warming since then had not shown up in the data. According to the study's lead author, Maria Herhold, a glaciologist at the Alfred Wegener Institute in Germany, the new data represents a clear signature of global warming. The warming spike also mirrors a sudden rise in the amount of water running off from Greenland's melting ice, the study finds, which has continued to increase since the end of the new data record in 2011. That worries Danish Meteorological Institute ice scientist Jason Box, who noted that North Greenland has a dozen wide tidewater glaciers and an ice stream that could accelerate the melting from Greenland. Item 2. A unique new solar installation in Switzerland known as Alpen Solar can be found on the Lake Mutsi Dam in the central canton of Glarus. A 2.2 megawatt array, comprising nearly 5,000 solar modules, has been attached to the dam to maximize its energy production. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.